0: even though I'm preaching on Matthew chapter 23 this morning, I'd like you to turn to chapter 21. As we approach the 23rd chapter in a few minutes, let me remind you that Jesus is in the last week of His life. Soon to be crucified, In order, of course, to pay for our sins, soon to be buried, raised from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of His Father in heaven, where He will reign until His second coming, at which time He will judge the world and renew the earth and live with His redeemed and sinless people for all eternity. This last week of his earthly life is recorded in chapters 21 through 27. 28 is about the resurrection. In chapter 21, his authority was challenged by the religious leaders, the chief priests and elders. He baffles them with a question of his own, which they could not answer, and therefore refuses to answer their question. He went on to refute his detractors with three parables. The two sons, the talents, and in chapter 24, verses 1 through 14, the wedding feast. The thrust of his teaching in these three parables was that the nation of Israel was going to be rejected by God. And that the kingdom would be given to a new people. I would just ask you to notice, please, verse Chapter 21 and verse 43. 21 through uh, verse 43. Therefore I tell you, this is at the end of the parable of the tenants, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. We are that people. Every true Gentile believer on the face of the earth has been made by God's grace to be a part of that people, that new nation, if you will, the new spiritual Israel. The rejection of Israel... And his creation of a new temple, Jesus had already symbolized by cleansing the temple, showing his authority. You remember in another place, he said, A greater than the temple is among you. Jesus is the ultimate temple, the ultimate dwelling place with God. And he asserted his superiority over the earthly temple when he cleansed it. And you may also remember that he cursed the fruitless fig tree, which was a sign that he was about to curse the fruitless fig tree of Israel. His political allegiance was challenged, as we were reminded by Pastor Mark, through the Herodians, who who cleverly uh, tried to put him on the horns of a dilemma, but he simply refuted their attempt with a coin. His theology of resurrection was challenged by the Sanhedrin, or by the Sadducees, which he again easily refuted. Their mouths were stopped. And Matthew observes in chapter 22, verse 33. Please notice that. This is a significant verse. Matthew 22, 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. His ethics were challenged. Again, we were reminded and taught about this through Pastor Mark by the Pharisees with a question about what was the greatest commandment. And again, he easily refuted them and shut their mouths for good by asking them another question which put them on the horns of an impossible dilemma. Then Matthew tells us, and I want you to notice this verse with me once again, verse 46 of chapter 22. And no one... Was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You know, if we had been there during those days and during those times of dialogue with the, with the religious enemies of our savior, we probably couldn't have contained ourselves we probably would have busted out with some kind of a spontaneous, Go Jesus! Yes! He just shut their mouths. He just showed how foolish and darkened their understandings were. So, our humble, meek, repeatedly challenged, and assaulted Savior acquits himself masterfully By utterly silencing his enemies. And now, this morning, in chapter 23, no longer looking like a meek and lowly Savior riding on a donkey, our Sovereign Lord goes on the offense. He goes on the attack in ways like he never spoke before. He takes it to his enemies. His gloves are off. In 35 straight verses, beginning with verse 2, he unsheaths the sharp, cutting, piercing sword of his mouth and utterly denigrates his religious enemies, the scribes and Pharisees. And he does it in such a way that left them completely dumbfounded and speechless. For our chapter, chapter 23, ends with absolute silence and no record whatsoever of response. These words recorded in Matthew 23 are the final words of our Savior to the religious leaders of his day. And after they were spoken, the chief priests, the elders, the Herodians, the Sadducees, And the Pharisees were thoroughly consternated, confused, and never again dared to ask him a question. Here's what John MacArthur says about these 35 verses. Quote, Jesus' words in this passage fly from his lips like claps of thunder and spears of lightning. Out of his mouth on this occasion came the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus uttered on earth. Leon Morris writes, quote, There is nothing comparable to this sustained denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees in any of the other Gospels. Brothers and sisters, if we didn't know who our Savior is and who he was, the perfect, sinless Son of God. We might be tempted to say, after reading this chapter, that Jesus was having a temper tantrum. That He was out of control. That He was sinning with His words. But He wasn't. He was in complete control of His emotions and tongue. And yet... He called the scribes and Pharisees, you're going to hear it in a moment. He called them hypocrites seven times, sons of hell, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, persecutors, murderers, and yes, snakes and vipers. Does that sound like our Savior? It was. Now, so that you may feel, and so that I may also feel, our Savior's holy anger and disdain, I want you to listen to this chapter being read by my favorite reader of Scripture, to whom I listen to virtually every day of my life. I don't even know his name. It's not Max McLean. It's a a man from Great Britain. We'll listen to the whole chapter, and then I will try to break it down simply and briefly for our edification. So I'm going to uh, take a seat and listen with you, and then we'll come right back to consider the chapter.
1: Matthew chapter 23 Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Or oh, they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth Father, for you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you! Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. Oh, you blind men! Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides! You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous— But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and fallacies, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead, then, and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes. You brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple. I tell you, all will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
0: You can see why I enjoy listening to him virtually every day of my life because he interprets as he reads just by the inflection of his voice. Very, very hopeful. And by the way, his name is David Suchet. Um, he also was the one who narr- narrates the uh, children's story book Bible, if you have an interest in that. Powerful, very powerful what we just heard. We could almost pray, and go home. Jesus has preached, and because there is more Pharisee in each of us than we care to acknowledge, we have already, I hope, been convicted. I said we could almost go home. I didn't say we can go home. So let me just quickly show you how this chapter divides up. There are three sections because there are three different audiences. Maybe you notice that. Even though they were all together in one setting, there were three different audiences. First of all, Jesus speaks to the crowds and disciples. Notice that in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... Now, that includes the Pharisees, because it's very obvious that the scribes and Pharisees were also present. So secondly, starting with verse 13, Jesus speaks directly in the first person to the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them by name seven times. And then third, as we heard at the end of this reading, Jesus speaks to Jerusalem. To the Holy city so let's take a look at these and start first of all with the crowds and the disciples verses uh, 2 through 12 and you'll notice even there there's a little bit of a division I'm trying to be too complicated I'm actually trying to make this clear first of all he's t- telling the crowds which as I said included the scribes and Pharisees what they were like. He's saying, let me, let me explain to you and tell you what the scribes and Pharisees and their religion is like. And then notice verse eight. He starts talking to the crowds and his disciples, which probably included potential disciples. See, there was a war going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the darkness, and the Pharisees and the scribes could see this building, this Jesus getting more followers, and they were there to try to discredit him. That's why they ask all the questions to try to trick him and make him look foolish. So there were people who didn't know what to think for sure about Jesus. There were true disciples, there were potential disciples, and there were his own twelve. And what does he tell them? Well, in essence, he tells them what they must be like in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees. So verses 1 through 7, what the scribes and Pharisees are like. Verses 8 through 12, what true Christians should be like. So let's start then with what the scribes and Pharisees were like. I think in a summary fashion, I can say to you that there were three things that they lacked. They lacked integrity they lacked sympathy, and they lacked humility. I think those three words capture a lot of what's said in verses 2 through 7. They lacked integrity. What I mean to say is that they didn't practice what they preached. You see that in verse 3. Jesus says, listens to them, they do sit in a place of scriptural authority. They do sit in Moses' seat. Listen to them. Not that everything they taught was true, but generally listen to them. But be careful about this. Don't do what they do. Hear what they say. Do what they say, if it's biblical, but don't do what they do. Because they are not men of integrity. There's a serious, woeful disconnect between their persons and their message. Between their message and their lives. A big disconnect. They lacked integrity. They preached well, but practiced horribly they also lack sympathy and and i see that especially in verse four because it tells us jesus tells us that they tied up heavy burdens hard to bear and laid them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them even with their little finger what were those burdens those burdens were minute regulations and stipulations that the word of god itself had never given to his people They took the laws of God, and then they decided on all the ways those laws ought to be applied, even though the Scriptures didn't teach how they ought to be applied. And they presented a very strict and burdensome way of life. And the poor followers of these scribes and Pharisees were heavy burdened. One cannot help but think of how beautiful the words of Jesus must have been to some of those people. When he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And you shall find rest for your shoals. Take my yoke upon you for my burden is light. Jesus stood in such contrast in terms of his genuine, compassionate, liberating gospel. So they were not men of sympathy. Their hearts were not broken for their followers. And they were clearly not men of humility. That becomes very clear in verses 5 through 7. Several things Jesus says there, which basically come down to this. The the one that captures them all is the beginning of verse 5. They do all their deeds. They do all their deeds. All of their deeds are driven by one motive. What is that one motive? It is to be seen... By others. And then he gives them for instances. The phylacteries, the tassels or the fringes of their robes, places of honor at feasts, best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and names and titles. Very, very important. I'm not merely Ted Christman. I'm Pastor Ted Christman. I'm Professor So-and-so. I'm Rabbi. Don't call me by my first name. I hold a prestigious office and I expect respect from you. That was the, the whole spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were arrogant men who sought to draw attention to themselves and not to God, lacking integrity, sympathy, and humility. That's what they were like. Well, what what should we be like? Jesus tells us in verse 8 through 12. Basically, the exact opposite of the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't be like them. There are some applications. Let me just reflect for a moment again on them. We should do what our spiritual guides teach us to do, even if we lack respect for their persons. That's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard when you lose respect for someone to really listen to them? Have you ever felt that you have a license not to? Well, they're inconsistent with their lives. You might want to talk to Jesus about that. Because Jesus said, listen to them. They sit on the seat of Moses and do what they say. Yeah, but they're, they're inconsistent, Lord. The word of God Is what's critical. Listen. Implement. Apply. We should make every effort to be men and women of integrity and sympathy and humility so that we don't needlessly minimize our effectiveness and our influence for good. So those are just a couple of applications with regard to what the Pharisees were like. But again, what is it that as disciples we must be like? Well... We need to be, in contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, not arrogantly desirous of titles, which make us to appear superior to our brothers and sisters. That's why Jesus says, you have one father. Now let's get this straight. If God is your father, what does that make you in relationship to one another? Brothers and sisters. Not rabbi and instructor first, but brothers and sisters. And also, we must continually pursue, according to our Savior, servanthood. Notice what he says toward the end of this little pericope, this little section of Scripture. He says in verse 11 and 12, The greatest among you shall be your servant, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The greatest of you shall be your servant. Brothers and sisters, we must continually pursue servanthood. And I want to say it this way, and I'm sure you've heard this said, if not identically, in similar ways. The way up is down. The way down is up. God will take care of this even if we don't ourselves get involved in his providence, in his justice. He has a way of making that principle real. And even if we have to wait until the day of judgment to have our arrogance exposed, On that day, we will come down. But the lower we go now, by the grace of God, the higher we go as well. So even there, a deceitful heart that's desperately wicked can say, oh, I see. I can be thought a whole lot of and get way up high if I go down. And your motive to go down is to get up. He's not talking about that. He's talking about... Upward in effectiveness for the kingdom and the glory of God. He's talking about usefulness. And of course, he's talking eschatologically. That would be in terms of what's going to happen in the future. We will be wonderfully glorified and exalted and encouraged. So, that's just a little bit about verses 1 through 8. Now, you may say, if you took that long for 1 through 8, it didn't take me long to do the math and say, we're going to get out of here about um, 2.15, so go tell the cooks to slow down the fire. No, I'm going to go very quickly, actually. And I've been through this material, so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. It's a, it's a massive passage, you know. This is a big chapter, and this is one of the challenges of your pastors trying to do a chapter a week. But there's, there's great value in it, because we're flying over, we're getting a view of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And it gives you a paradigm and a, and an ability to look into it more carefully. So I'm gonna do the same thing here. This chapter has 39 verses. Poor Pastor Keith, who's preaching next week, has 51. And I don't know who's up. I'm sure it's either Pastor Jonathan or Mark coming to chapter 27 has 75 verses. That'll be something. That'll be a Class B miracle. So here we're going to take a quick look at these verses, Esau, these, uh, verses uh, 12 through 36. Now, what we have, as you heard and listened to, was seven woes, seven woes. Woe, 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 woe. Seven times. What is a woe? Well, sometimes a woe is merely a regretful lament. But more than not... In most cases, a woe is a powerful, sometimes scathing denunciation of judgment, much like a curse. You may want to think of it this way. A woe is the exact opposite of a blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Woe are the proud and arrogant. And the context is what establishes for us, the nature of the woe, and in this particular case, there's no question that it is a powerful denunciation of judgment, much like a curse. So let's look at them. Now, I think it's helpful to, to kind of group six of them. Six of them, I think, kind of naturally fall into three pairs. The first two, then three and four, then five and six, and then seven perhaps stands on its own. The first woe is found in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. He's pronouncing a curse upon the scribes and Pharisees for keeping people out of heaven. Imagine that. How did they do that? They did it by their lives, which were Filled with hypocrisy, and they brought disdain to their witness, but they also did it by their mouths. And that's why we have already worked through chapters 21 and chapters 22 and other portions of the gospel where the scribes and Pharisees were forever trying to trip up Jesus and trying to make him look silly and foolish and not to be followed. And to some extent, they probably succeeded And at least in that way, they were shutting the doors of the kingdom in the very faces of these poor lost sinners. And Jesus takes issue with it. The other thing is that they worked so hard to be evangelistic for their religion. And the end result was they made their converts, if you will, twice as much children of hell as they were before they got to them. And so Jesus says, you cross land and sea to make one convert. But when you're done, he or she is more bound for hell, twice as much bound for hell as they were before you got to them. They were lost to begin with, and then you made them more lost by giving them a wrong approach to God and finding forgiveness. It's all about what you do. And so they are door slammers, they are hell senders. But they're also truth evaders. If you'll notice in verses 18, I think it's through 22, he talks to them about this um, clever way of distinguishing certain vows from other vows. And the end of the whole deal was, look, um, if you really want to make a solid, solemn vow that God himself will um, witness, then make sure that you swear by the right thing. If you swear by the gold on the altar, you will be making a valid vow. If you just swear by the altar, it's not binding. They were very confused about the concept of the omnipresence of God. Because all swearing, making of oaths, must be in the presence of God. Now, please don't uh, conclude that Jesus is teaching that His disciples should make vows and they should swear. He's, He's not saying that. In fact, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, which we already considered, He says, don't, don't make oaths. Don't swear by anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Often, I think the swearing on a stack of Bibles or over our mother's grave or whatever the case may be, I cross my heart and hope to die, is really an evidence of our own lack of integrity and our own sense of that. we got to try really, really, really hard to make people believe that we're telling the truth. And we need to just say, this is the deal, and speak the truth. And if you're asked a question, the answer is yes or no. I sometimes uh, Find myself just for a moment impatient with my grandchildren, believe it or not. I've never confessed this to Jonathan, but it has actually more to do with the kids of Justin and Rebecca, and one of them in particular. <laughs> they're in um, they're in Nebraska, and Justin performed a wedding yesterday. It's interesting how many weddings and funerals he has been doing, but at any rate, one of those sweet little girls. I'll ask her a question. And it takes her forever to answer. And so I say to her, honey, that's a yes or no question. It's real easy. It's yes or no. Just say yes or no, but tell the truth. It's yes or no. You don't have to think about it. And that's the way we should live. So the uh, scribes and Pharisees were endorsing a a kind of deception because if there's certain vows that are binding and certain that are unbinding, hey, that's kind of cool, isn't it? So I'm going to give an answer that I hope will be persuasive to the person, but I'm not going to give an account for it because it's not binding. I'm just going to swear by the altar, not by the gold on the altar, or the gift on the altar. I'm going to swear by the temple, not by the gold in the temple. That's pretty clever. So in a sense, you see, they were endorsing deception. They were truth evaders. Door slammers, hell senders, truth evaders. And then the other one that's coupled with it, found in verse 23, is that they found a way to major on the minor and minor on the major. You see that um, they tithe on mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of justice. All of us have spices at home. You you ladies have probably a, a little, one of those things that revolves around carousel, and maybe it has some spices on it. How How much would it set you back If you had to tithe on 10% of your spices, that'd be a big deal in your life. But how serious is it for us to neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness? And Jesus says these Pharisees have found a way to do the former and not the latter. The former is good. It's biblical. But in terms of comparison, it's relatively insignificant. It's majoring on the minor. And when you're not a person of justice and mercy, then you are minoring on the major. And you have become what I would call a virtue her. Do you have a proneness to major on the minor and minor on the major? I do. Are you consciously trying to fight against that tendency? Let's make sure we are. So the scribes and Pharisees are door slammers and hell senders and truth evaders and virtue neglecters, but they're also image idolaters. And we see that in verse 25. Here's another woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites! What do they do? They clean the outside of the cup, of the plate, cup and plate, but not the inside. And Jesus' counsel is, if you really work on the inside, the outside will take care of itself. They were very focused on, preoccupied with externalism. They were magnifying the minutiae and minimizing the momentous. And now we see in this one they were preoccupied with externalism and we all have that proneness. Maybe you don't. I hope you don't. And I will rejoice with you if you say, I don't think I really struggle with that. Well, I'm sorry to inform you that the one preaching to you this morning struggles with it. I might as well just say it. I struggle with hypocrisy. Pray for me I struggle with sometimes not being real. And I have to fight against that. I struggle sometimes with motive. And you would have to be a pastor to know how the devil works on you all week long and inspires you to preach well for the wrong reasons. So that you'll be affirmed, so that you'll be appreciated, so that you'll be commended, and so forth. What a base motive. And the devil leaves even present when you pray, God, I want you to bless my sermon. I need you to bless my sermon. And I think sometimes I hear in my conscience God saying, oh, really? And why do you want my blessing? The inward is critical, dear people. It's critical. I'm going to come back and make an application to that in a minute. So that's the fifth one. The sixth one is that they were oblivious to outward corruption. Notice verses 27 and 28. Once again, he uses an analogy, whitewashed tombs. It was the practice in those days to whitewash the tombs, especially so that when people were coming through town, maybe visitors from another town, they wouldn't touch anything that would automatically defile them because they wouldn't know that it's a grave. And so they were responsible to keep the tombs whitewashed. But still, at the end of the day, a whitewashed tomb looks good. It looks beautiful, but pull the door away, pull the rock away and go in and take a deep breath and look at what you see on the inside of the tomb. Corruption. And Jesus says that's that's what a pharisaical life produces. But he wants us to look at our hearts. So the scribes and Pharisees, in addition to being door slammers and hell senders and truth evaders and virtue neglecters and image idolaters, were heart ignorers. And then we come to the last one. It's found in verses 29 through 36. And we find that the scribes and Pharisees were looking over the, the old tombs of the former prophets and saying, you know, isn't it a shame that that... Tomb really doesn't at all reflect the glory of the person that once preached to our nation. We should do some honor and justice to that great prophet. Let's build a good tomb, a beautiful tomb. And why were they doing that? Probably in one sense to assuage their consciences, because it was their dad and their granddad or their great great granddad. And they didn't want to be thought of as the people who slew the prophets and murdered the prophets. And Jesus says, well, let me just remind you, you said it. They were your forefathers. It's your family. Like father, like son. Like great-great-grandfather, like great-great-son. You're made of the same stuff. And we can tell that they were made of the same stuff because toward the end of this chapter, Jesus says in verse 34, I send you um, <clears throat> prophets and wise men, I therefore I send you. I send you, Jesus now sends you, you, you people that I'm talking to right now, prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. Jesus is saying, don't fool yourself. No matter how much money you put into erecting a good tomb for your, for the former prophets of this nation, you yourself are a prophet hater and you're going to prove it real, real soon. You're actually going to crucify me. And when the book of Acts is written, you can see how you are in hot pursuit of all God's servants. You flog them in synagogues, you beat them up, you imprison them, and some of them you kill. So these prophet haters were only trying to fool themselves and others because everything they did, everything they did was to be seen of men. So that's sort of what Jesus is talking about in these seven woes. Now, just a few applications before we come to the conclusion. We must be, this is my first, very careful about becoming stumbling blocks for potential converts by the way we live our lives. Because Jesus said you can actually slam the door in someone's face and keep them, humanly speaking, you can be instrumental of keeping them out of The kingdom. So we need to be careful about the way we live and about the things we say and about the things we do. And then, secondly, we must be on guard for all the subtle ways that we can avoid telling the absolute truth. That's why the whole thing of oaths is very convenient and very helpful. And if you want to be less than absolutely honest, find a justification like that. Well, I didn't swear by the gold. I swore by the altar. We are born liars. That's what the psalmist says. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. And we need to be delivered from our lying tendencies and become men and women and boys and girls of absolute truth. Oh, how we can rationalize. And this, of course, is going to require purity of heart and, if I might add, a greater fear of God than a fear of man. What makes us want to lie? Well, if we tell the truth, we're going to get in some kind of trouble. Boys and girls, listen to me very carefully. When mom and dad ask you a question and you don't want to tell them the truth, what you're understandably afraid of is discipline in some form or fashion. I, Pastor Ted understands that. I was a boy. I remember as a little boy one of the big breaking events in my life, uh, which resulted in a very, very severe spanking from my dear father, was when I stuck a stamp on the... Um, on the wall, and and my dad asked how it got up there. And I knew if I said I stuck it up there, I was going to get in trouble. But I probably imagined worse trouble than it would have been, really. Because a gracious father might say, why did you do that? Did you think that makes the wall look better? Did you think mom needs a little help with decoration around here? Maybe I wouldn't have been disciplined. Maybe I would have just been instructed. But I was afraid. And I lied and I lied and I lied. And before the night was over, I had the most severe spanking of my life. And my dad told me in his living days that that was a turning point in my life. But I was afraid. And fear is what sometimes causes you boys and girls not to tell the truth. Just tell your parents the truth. Just tell the truth. And maybe you'll cry because your heart is broken. I hope you don't cry to try to get sympathy. Tell the truth. So we grow up with the ability to To tell lies. We must be men and women and boys and girls of the absolute truth. It's critical. And then I want to say this. That we must be continually examining our hearts. To see what inward corruption still remains there. And ask ourselves over and over and over, what is my motive? That's what we take away from this passage. I mean, if you have to really generalize the whole thing down, don't be proud, love people, tell the truth. How much do we care about our image? How much do you care about your reputation? How much do you care? How much do I care about our positions and our influence? How much do we care about what people think about us? The short answer is too much. The little longer answer is way too much. And so we must be sobered by the realization that we, just like the Pharisees, are capable of being very religious very knowledgeable, very disciplined, and yet be utterly lost. Were these Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees saved? If you can conclude that from what Jesus says toward the end of this chapter, especially when he calls them snakes and a brood of vipers, and all those other things I told you he called them when you put it all together, If you think they were saved, you better rework your doctrine of salvation. They were lost. They were unconverted. But they didn't think they were lost. In fact, we need to remember that they were very respectable. When a Pharisee walked by, you... You looked at him with great regard. You didn't say, there comes a stinking Pharisee who's a hypocrite to the core. You wouldn't have had the insight of the Savior to see that and to know that. And you would see, oh, I would like to be as godly as that man is. They were the most godly people on the face of the earth. And most of them are in hell this morning. And so it proves to us that we can be very religious... We can be very knowledgeable. We can be very meticulous about our walk and yet be utterly lost. And then lastly, just this word about the the lament at the end so that we can quit on time. The lament is found in verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem. Who is Jerusalem? It's difficult to be sure. Well, you can't actually talk to a city because a city can't hear, but Jesus is personifying the city. He may have been talking to all of the population. He may have been talking to the leadership. He may have been thinking of the temple. It's difficult to know But what isn't difficult to know is that his heart was deeply, deeply burdened for that city's future and for its inhabitants. And you can almost feel the pathos in Jesus. There's a shift in emotion here. He's not calling Jerusalem a city of snakes and vipers now. He's he's looking at a city that's about to come under judgment. And it was about to come under judgment because it was about to reject its Messiah. He'd already cursed the fig tree. He'd already cleansed the temple. He'd already asserted that a greater than the temple was there. He'd already said that there's going to be a new nation. This nation is going to be rejected and will forfeit all of the promised blessings they could have had. And now he looks at Jerusalem, the capital city of this God-forsaken unbelieving nation of Israel, disobedient and wicked, And his heart is broken. And in essence, he says, I wanted so much from the depths of my heart to gather you the way a hen gathers her little chicks and puts them under her wings for shelter and protection because I loved and cared for you. This is recorded also back in Luke and there it's we're told that he wept over jerusalem it is a different time okay don't confuse me. i'm not saying that the same account is found in luke what i'm saying is a similar account of jesus weeping over jerusalem is found there's a great puritan sermon entitled the redeemer's tears and here you can he's on the verge of crying his heart is saddened and he says, in spite of all that I would have done, and you would not. I would, you would not. Jesus was willing to show mercy and forgiveness to this rebellious people. But in their pride, they were unwilling to to receive his mercy. And so the judgment was soon to come. What a beautiful picture of our Savior. I hope you keep seeing the contrast between Jesus and Pharisees. And I just want to remind all of us, dear people, that particularly those of you who are not this moment, this moment looking to Jesus Christ as your Savior. And all that means is, hey, I'm wicked I'm sinful. I violated God's laws hundreds of thousands of times, maybe millions of times. He's holy and just. That sin must be punished. He can't sweep it under the carpet. So either that punishment's going to fall on me, or according to the good news of the gospel, it's going to have to fall on a perfect substitute. And it did. It fell upon the Lord Jesus. And so, dear, dear friend, dear unconverted friend, perhaps sitting with us today, if you are not trusting in Jesus and you continue to refuse to trust in Jesus, you know what's going to happen to you? Your house will come down just like the house of Jerusalem. He says to the inhabitants, your house is left to you desolate and it was and the ultimate evidence of their rebellion was their crucifixion of the final prophet he says you've been doing this all along you've been killing my messengers and now you're about to kill the final messenger and when you do your house will be left desolate And if we don't come to this Jesus and receive by faith his gracious work on the behalf of sinners, a day will come for us when, like Jerusalem, it will be literally too late. These are the words of J.C. Ryle, and I conclude with them. A will to repent and believe no man can give himself. But a will to reject Christ and have his own way every man possesses by nature. And if not saved at last, that will, that will prove to have been his destruction. You will not come to me, says Christ, that you may have liked. Let us leave the subject with a comfortable reflection that with Christ nothing is impossible. The hardest heart can be made willing in the day of his power. Grace beyond doubt is irresistible. But never let us forget that the Bible says of man, the Bible speaks of man as a responsible being, and it says of some, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Acts seven fifty one. Let us understand that the ruin of those who are lost is not because Christ was not willing to save them, nor yet because they wanted to be saved but could not, but because they would not come to Christ. Could we all just pray this one prayer as I pray that God will not let us be like Pharisees? That God will purge every Pharisaical tendency in all of our lives. Out of our hearts, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this fearful sermon of our Savior, this fearful pronunciation of woes and judgment. And Lord, we have learned that we have much Pharisee in our hearts, and we pray that you'll deliver us from it entirely, that you will Help us to go down so that someday we may go up. That you will help us to be real. That you will help us to be compassionate. Bless this church and Lord be gracious to any unconverted soul among us today. May they say this is the day I need to trust in Jesus. And may they be willing to come to him. We pray in your name. Amen.